3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to Elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation and we recognise unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Welcome to Thursday Breakfast. Good morning, Em. Good morning, Shahrazad. So today's the 6th, I think. Yeah, 6th yeah? of September. Yeah. Happy spring, everyone. <laughs> and, but yesterday was International Women's Day. International Women's <laughs> Day. Yeah, and it's not an officially recognised uh, day as well. So we've got a, we just put together a bunch of songs uh, to play for the first half hour from Indigenous women from around the world. So pretty look, I'm looking forward to hearing that. Yeah, and maybe before we jump into that, how about we do a quick rundown of what we're going to be doing later in the show. After we've played all these really great tracks, we're going to be chatting to Lizzie O'Shea, um, who's a human rights lawyer from Digital Rights Watch. Um, she's a board member there about the government's proposed facial recognition scheme. Then we're going to chat with Iris Lee about um, Jermaine Greer's book launch that's happening this evening and an action that is occurring to protest that. At 8 o'clock, we're really lucky to chat with Ronnie Kareni, um, who's a West Papuan advocate, and we're going to be speaking with him about the Pacific Islands Forum that's been happening um, this week. And then we'll be talking with Jonathan Latham about I guess, some of the risks and concerns around genetically engineered crops and the corporatization of um, food and the seed industry. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up, and we're still talking about revolution. Okay, so we were just listening just before that CSA to Malika Zara uh, with the track uh, Tamazicht. And now we are really lucky to talk with Lizzie O'Shea, who's a human rights lawyer and board member of Digital Rights Watch. Lizzie has a book being published next year on technology, history and politics. And she joins us today to discuss the risks of the government's proposed facial recognition surveillance scheme. Good morning, Lizzie. Hi, thanks for having me on. Oh, thanks so much for joining us. So I was wondering, can we jump straight in and could you just give us a bit of background on what, what is this proposed facial recognition scheme? 
Sure. So there's a bill that's been tabled in Parliament and it's got a couple of different purposes, but probably the main one is it's designed supposedly to combat identity theft. So it's designed to create a what's called an intraoperability hub where the Department of Home Affairs will uh, gather together information from different states uh, and therefore you can make a search and uh, a request and a, a retrieve results on biometric information on individuals. So it will be used for law enforcement but other kinds of purposes as well. But the idea is it will be data that's collected at state level, most obviously which is photographs of people used to get their driver's licence. Yeah, wow. Um, I think both of us are sitting here in the yeah. studio <laughs> raising our eyebrows because it sounds pretty terrifying, to be honest. Yeah, I, I think it is really scary. In part, uh, the part of the way that the bill's justified is that the Department of Home Affairs says we're not going to hold any information. We're just designed uh, designing the system so that you can put in a search and request and get a response. And we're just accumulating the data uh, as, a, as a search engine, kind of like Google doesn't hold data itself, but it acts as a search engine. But the problem I've got with that is that once you've made an entry into that database, uh, you've made a request to the Department of Home Affairs, they can hold that data and process it and they can access all the data associated with that biometric information, in particular your your photos. So Victoria, for example, holds a lot of uh, data about somebody with a, a driver's licence, including names and addresses and stuff like that, and car registration, obviously. So what we've seen then is... Um, a design by the Department of Home Affairs to gradually get a database that gets richer and richer as more people enter search terms and requests for information, which I think is really troubling. Um, you know, the, the Department of Home Affairs is not known for its uh, moderation and, um, you know, care when it comes to people, and I think people should be concerned about this bill. I mean, obviously, the other reason to be concerned is biometric data is something that you can't change. You know, it's attached to you as a person, uh, and that may, makes it's very difficult if there are mistakes or, or we're really trusting the data to be correct and uh, there's been lots of problems in the United States where a similar program has been introduced. Mm. What, what, was the, what, what were the problems in the US with the program and what was the program? So the Australian bill is kind of modelled in a very similar way to what, what is used by the FBI and there's some great resources where you can read about what's gone wrong with it. Um, on, you know, for example, Electronic Frontiers Foundation has written about it. Uh, but there's a lot of problems with the accuracy of the data and what they they use for those inputs are mugshots. And what that means is that um, uh, minority communities, particularly African-Americans and Hispanic communities, are over-policed. So they're the people who feature most prominently in the database. And then also the mistakes with the facial recognition system is well, are well documented. And that means those communities end up having to bear the consequences of, of bad uh, algorithms and software that do a bad job of matching people to uh, their biometric information, particularly photos. So you can see how communities that are over-policed end up having more data accumulated against them, create the potential for more mistakes. So it's not even just like mugshots. In Australia, for example, the proposal is that um, you know law enforcement and other kinds of agencies can use this interoperability hub. Uh, but what they'll do is probably input their own photos that they might have collected, whether it's at um, you know public, in a public space or potentially CCTV is one option. <clears throat> and you can see how then more and more data gets accumulated on individuals, uh, which I think starts to mean that they're, they're kind of surveilled in lots of things that they do, um, which, you know, means that those people end up being targeted for more kinds of law enforcement uh, attention, uh, which I, I think is a real problem. 
Yeah, and there, there are two points there that I think that you've just raised that I think are so vital. Firstly, um, when you said before about algorithms and about, um, you know, that, that people are impacted by, yeah, algorithms in different ways. And what, what's so important to stress is that these systems aren't neutral, you know, that they're not. I think a lot of people think, oh, yeah, like it's data, it's algorithms, it's scientific, that therefore somehow it's neutral. But actually it's not neutral um, and it impacts different groups of people in different ways and particularly what you said about racial profiling and the incredibly real risks of racial profiling with a system oh, like this. I, I couldn't agree with you more. One thing I think about that is, uh, we're all, on one level, all algorithms are designed to be discriminatory. That's what they do. They process data and they make decisions about how to reduce it down to, a, to results, right? So the whole idea of an algorithm is to be discriminatory. The question that, that then I think everybody's entitled to ask is, what are the inputs for making those discriminatory decisions? And if they're not transparent, we can't know what they are. And um, we, we don't have the right to then question whether that's a, a useful way of deciding who to target. Um, and we've seen this in the United States as well, where, uh, you know, they use a, a lot of predictive policing systems and increasingly in Australia as well. And you can see how a biometric um, uh, uh, data pool in Australia could be used for profiling at some point in the future, um, even if this is not exactly what the design of the bill is now. Once that data's in the hand of go- hands of government, that's what it could be used for. And you see this all the time in the US. What, what um, one academic I, I saw speak on this issue described it to me is that... Um, these kind of databases don't tell you what, where crime is occurring. It tells you what the state's response to crime has been. And in the past, that has been to over-police communities of colour. And so then we see that discrimination imported into this new technology. So while we might use algorithms all the time to sift through data, that might be a fine thing to do, provided you, you know what those inputs are and you're confident that they're not importing racial bigotry, um, you know, profiling from uh, years gone past amongst law enforcement into your new system of uh, of policing or, or whatever it is. Mm. And and under the Australian bill, um, would it just be police that have access to this data? Like you mentioned that it was like a Google search, so to speak. Who would actually be able to do that search? So it will be confined, uh, but at the moment it will be things, uh, companies potentially like banks, so for uh, targeting um, obviously identity theft is the central purpose of the bill. Um <clears throat> The other thing I would say, though, is that um, that's a, it's a legitimate question. How do we know who will have access to this in the future? And once we have this database, of course, it can be used by others uh, potentially in the future with a, a law reform amendment. Um, and, and one thing I would say then is that the purpose of the bill, I think, is really interesting to re- reflect upon. Um, it's stated key purpose is really to monitor identity theft, but there's also some other things in there like reducing um, essentially people's non-compliance with paying traffic fines and monitoring road safety, which I'm happy that the government wants to um, improve road safety, but I'm really not sure why we need a biometric database in order to do that. And I'm also not convinced that when identity theft happens, that uh, biometric information necessarily uh, guards against that kind of criminal activity. Um, Usually people who are conducting identity theft are pretty good at evading that. And while people may be able to verify their own identity using biometric information, there's still huge scope for fraud that exists. And so I think therefore we have to ask a bigger question. Sure, the government can collect this information and sure it does serve some of these purposes in limited ways, but we're also witnessing a transfer of power to the Department of Home Affairs 
to surveillance agencies to use this and potentially for anyone else who might get access to this in the future. And we really have to ask whether that is fit for purpose. Just because this technology exists doesn't mean that we have to use it. And further, it doesn't mean that we need to use it without uh, proper checks and balances that can really limit who gets access to it, what purpose it's used for, and how that um, data is held, what kind of data is collected. And I think we really need to to take a step back and ask why the government feels this is the right way to deal with these particular purposes. Mm, Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and on that note, um, are there any oversight mechanisms built into the bill at present to prevent misuse, and do these go far enough in your view? It's the, no, but I don't think you'd be surprised to hear me say that. Um, no, as usual, there's some limited public reporting that the, uh, the, the minister will do, but I don't think it's anywhere near enough. I think we can uh, think of all sorts of ways in which it might be improved. Um, and, you know, the, the tradition of government in these kinds of uh, bills is to put some, some very limited public reporting by the minister that records, for example, the number of searches and things like that, but doesn't give you any detail about about, um, you know, what the content has been or what the effect has been. I think one of the things we need with particularly um, these kinds of uh, da- databases and algorithms like we were talking about before is some method for auditing them, for checking that they're not um, reproducing uh, unfairness and uh, bigotry and, and, and discrimination. I think we can do that. We can have public bodies that audit them um, and we can have, like, public accountability um Organs that will monitor how government uses these these uh, these immense powers, these databases that create immense power, uh, and that we might also consider, um, you know, recording uh, misuse and, and mistakes in a more active way, so that we we track who gets access to this database and when they've been uh, accessing things inappropriately. We need to have that kind of data at that much more uh, micro level, I think, than just the minister saying, "Oh, this is how it's used in the last you know 12 months or whatever it is." I think we can think up interesting ways to make this much more transparent while also serving the purpose um, that it's designed for. But, you know, the the government, of course, is trying to limit the extent to which it's held accountable for these kinds of systems. And for that reason, I think we should be opposing it. Mm. And I'm sure also what isn't um, captured in the data that the the government is proposing to look at is the impact of a scheme like this, you know, and actually the impact of, um, you know, potential over-policing or racial profiling or targeting young people or or also even like jeopardising the right to protest, for example, as well, um, is another... Yeah, concern I've had with this bill, certainly. Um, but I want to ask you, because I believe not all states and territories have been on board with this bill. Is that correct? Like, has Victoria thought uh, about pulling out? Victoria has. I mean, the the original, the bill uh, evolved from a, an agreement amongst the states and territories at a, um, a meeting in 2017. They all signed an agreement to implement this over time. But, of course, um, it's that... That might have been an agreement at the time, but things changed. And Victoria in particular has expressed concerns um, about it, which I think is good, and we should encourage Victoria to do that. Um, I don't think this is entirely uh, silly to say that Victoria has the Charter of Human Rights, and I think that has... um, been reflected, even if not in practice in this instance, as a basis for uh, opposing it. I think it's also created a culture of respect for rights and thinking about how people's rights are protected and enforced. And um, that's a good thing, I think. Part of the problem with these kinds of databases or these proposals is that we don't have a Bill of Rights in Australia. And it means that um, all of our thinking around these things doesn't happen through that prism. Uh, and, you know, human rights is not without its critics and all that kind of stuff. But 
The absence of it from our legal system does mean that these kinds of proposals get put up with, uh, without a framework for criticising them, I think. And uh, it doesn't surprise me that Victoria is the state that's been the most vocal about the privacy concerns um, that arise because of this proposal. Uh, so I'm hoping that they'll stick to their guns and continue to oppose it um, and potentially pull out of the agreement to introduce it in the first place. Mm. And I mean, I think I think that is a really important point. But you know, yet at the same time, we see Victoria um, only increasing this incredibly draconian law and order approach in terms of anti-association laws, um, and yet over policing generally. So you know, it's this sort of left hand, right hand <laughs> type thing as well, perhaps. Oh yeah, I'm a, I'm certainly a critic of the Andrews government for some of the stuff that they've been putting in place in relation to policing powers. Um, so we have to stay constantly vigilant, yeah. uh, but we also have to take the opportunity to um, uh, support uh, these kinds of uh, moves where they're trying to stop uh, a database system which is so draconian as itself. So I think, of course, that it can be a contradictory beast, um, mm. but uh, I think it is a good thing that they've yeah. uh, expressed concern around the privacy issues associated with this database. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, there's heaps more I'd like to ask you about this morning. Um, but we are running out of time. So I yeah. just want to finish up by asking, you know, we've obviously had a change in government recently. And so where, where are things at now? What's likely to happen from here, particularly given the change of government? Um, and yeah, how can listeners find out more or get involved in opposing this bill? Yeah, so um, the bill has been referred to a couple of different committees, um, but it, it has been tabled, uh, and so there's people people have made submissions and given evidence to those committees. Um, but you know, it, it will obviously make its way at some point to to the uh, parliament to be passed. But uh, I'm unclear as to when that will be will happen, and I'm hopeful maybe that um, we might be able to convince. Uh, the Labor Party to um, get on board with opposing it and, and the crossbenchers as well um, and certainly uh, I hope that the evidence given to those committees will inform that process. So you can check out where it's up to online. The Australian Privacy Foundation put in a really good submission um, to the committee that was considering the bill that is worth reading if you want to learn more about it. Um, the Electronic Frontiers Foundation, as I mentioned before, has done a bit of work on the uh, American equivalent that inspired this particular bill. I mean, the, the last thing I would say, I know you're running out of time, is just that there is a nexus between um, private enterprise also and government in this instance. So when we use facial recognition for lots of different private purposes, you can see how that will eventually um, involve some kind of collaboration with the state in the mm. same way that, that it has been true in lots of different surveillance formats. So there is a back and forth between the two and I think uh, we do need to think about how we're using these kinds of systems in our private lives uh, for things like uh, purchasing things and um, mm. you know accessing our devices, how that might be used later. So we might want to be conscious about that and start also raising these concerns in other climates as well, not just in the um, in particular relation to this bill. So it's a much bigger issue than I think this bill, but of course this is the pointy end here and we need to try and do something about it. So getting involved in that process would be great. Absolutely, and I think that's such a great point to end on. You know, that this bill does seem really extreme, but actually that, you know, this is really normalised in everyday life from, you know, using facial recognition software to, to, to access your iPhone um, to, as you said, like making purchases or getting into work or whatever, um, and that we need to see those things as linked. But maybe we can talk about that another day. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Lizzie. Thanks so much for having me on. Rumination, three CRs, rooming house and homeless persons issues program featuring information on health and housing services as well as 
live local guests, artists and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12pm on Thursday on 3CR 855 AM. Good morning again. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast um, with me, Em, and Shahrazad. Um, it's the 6th of September, and now we're going straight into another interview um, with Iris Lee. And Iris is a white trans femme living on Bunurong and Wurundjeri country who's joining us this morning to talk about an action taking place tonight protesting the launch of Jermaine Greer's new book, which is called On Rape. Um, yeah, so, Iris, are you there? Yes, I'm there. Thanks, thanks for having me. Oh, no, thank you so much. I'm so glad I um, spoke to you last night and was <laughs> fortunate enough to convince you to come on air this morning. Um, yep. So good. So um, maybe to start, could you just let us know, yeah, about what's about this book launch that's happening tonight um, and a bit about the action that you're organising against it? Yeah, so um, Jeremy's having a book launch tonight on, with her book on rape um, at the Melbourne Exhibition and Convention Centre at 7pm and it's hosted by the School of Life which is a kind of like this edgy institution that wants to improve capitalism you just have to and has a lot of stuff about emotional intelligence to be a strange institution it's hosted by them and the book is published by Melbourne University Press which um, Greer's like had long had ties to Melbourne University and institutions um, that are close to Melbourne University. Um, so that's happening tonight, and a bunch of us are going to be there in protest because her her book is extremely troubling. Um, in it, she's earlier this year she made some pretty alarming statements about rape not really being bad and pretty victim blaming statements, and this book sort of continues that. I haven't read the book, but like I have read what's in the Australian and I do know her long standing history of transphobic comments, particularly towards trans women. Mm. And yeah, it's really concerning. Um she, she sticks to a very kind of cis hat definition of of rape in in her article in the Australian and a lot of like the trans exclusionary Radical feminist talking points that equate gender to genitals. So um, this is the stuff like she's renowned for for many um, for a long time. Um, and I suppose she kind of talks about how um, because a lot of rape there is no like consequence for it because of the poor conviction rate and because the justice system is um, you can't yeah. So she kind of but she doesn't even talk about transformative justice that takes up that problem and talks about how to make community accountability. It's just like, yeah, so instead she just thinks that the rape definition should be minimised completely and a lot of things that are called rape aren't really rape and are, are pretty harmless, really, and not violent, which is really concerning, concerning and it gives the God a lot of left cover to... Um, yeah, it really kind of marries a lot of conservative thought, really, and gives left cover for it. Yeah. Um, and as you say, the book was only published um, two days ago, I think. Um, so, you know, a lot of us haven't had a chance to read it yet. 
Um, and also a lot of us absolutely won't want to read it because, as you say, it's so violent and so toxic and so um, both transphobic and victim-blaming. Um, but you mentioned that, you know, this isn't... While this book seems really extreme, that this isn't new um, in terms of Jermaine Greer's work generally um, and that, you know, these these roots of transphobia in her writing have been there for a long time. Would you like to speak to that at all? Yeah, I would. Um, so interestingly, the female eunuch centers a trans woman called April Ashley, um, who was sensationally added in the mainstream media in 1961. And what she, what she does in the female eunuch is she kind of uses the tra- a trans woman as a foil and places a lot of disgust on like the ultimate desexualized, like inverted commas, cast rate that is the trans woman, April Ashley, in Korea. So, I think, like, in contrast to a lot of commentators that say that, oh, it's only in the last few decades that she's been really transphobic. I think, like, it has its roots in how she was speaking about womanhood in, um, like, in her earlier, like, publishing time in the 70s as well. Yeah, it has, like, mm-hmm. long roots. And this sort of, like, Transphobic debates has a long root in feminism and it's also been resisted and it goes up and down in terms of how much traction that any trans people have versus people in support of trans people because trans people have always existed in feminism. Yeah, of course. And and I also just think you raised that really vital point before of, you know, that this book is being supported by institutions that like to think of themselves as progressive as well. Um and that it really reveals, I guess, where like where their loyalties lie, so to speak, um, in terms of being mm-hmm. published by Melbourne University Press and also yeah. um, hosted by the what is it, the School of Life? The School of Life, which I hadn't heard of beforehand, but a lot of people I know have already liked that page. So obviously, it shows it's maybe I don't really know that much about it, but yeah, like who are they that they think they can just host this event and be, like, cultural and edgy, I mean, it's pretty gross. Mm. And, I mean, yeah, I sort of don't... I have, oh, sorry, you I go. have one more point on on institutions that Greer is close to. Um, a number of years ago, University of Melbourne, which um, she has long had ties with, bought her archives for a couple million dollars. Um, I really wonder what... And, like, imagine if, like, they actually spent that money on, like, archiving queer and trans history in Melbourne, like, it's quite disgusting how much money they spent on our archives and includes a lot of, like, insatiably long love letters to particular, like, man crushes that Greer has had rather than, like, helping trans people that are marginalised, distressed and have lack, lack resources. So, mm. like, and then same thing with Melbourne Uni, an academia in general, there's just so many trans-exclusionary radical feminists who also often a sex exclusion or radical feminist like Sheila Jeffries, I sort of reproduce that sort of like stuff at universities. Mm. Wait, so, sorry, so who's Sheila Jeffries? What happened there? Yeah, Sheila Jeffries is like she was a prominent trans-exclusionary, sex worker, exclusionary, radical feminist at Melbourne University who, who retired a few years ago um, and now is within the, in the UK but is was prolific at churning out these these horrible books, and you can see them in, you know, places like readings in the section on gender or whatever. You have Sheila Jeffrey books, or in 
like queer bookshops and yeah, she churned out a lot of stuff and has been very influential in a really bad way. Mm. And yeah, I guess also like like you were saying just before though, you know, there are these figures like Jermaine Greer and Sheila Jeffries who are you know, whose whose work has an incredibly negative impact. Um on so many people and so many communities, but also that they're part of a much broader problem um, of, you know, that the, the the whiteness and the um, the cis heteronormativity of feminism yeah. that they are seen to represent, you know, that goes much much deeper than either of them, um, and is embedded in these, you know, colonial institutions like Melbourne Uni, um, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I sort of, yeah, I wanted to, um, I guess we're, you know, we're heading, <laughs> running out of time a little bit, but um, I wanted to not give all the rest of our airtime to talking about how awful this book is, um, and instead to, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, some of the stuff that is going on in Melbourne, you know, because there's so much amazing um, queer and trans activism generally, um, and trans-feminist writing and you know, music and things like that, you know, just so, to give listeners an idea, you know, it's not it's not all terrible. Yeah. Can we just actually talk about some of the amazing stuff that's going on in Melbourne right now? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's so many trans, particularly musicians, um, are doing important things. Yeah, there's so many things happening in Melbourne, gosh. Um, and in terms of activism, there was a protest the other week that sort of successfully, in some ways, sort of pushed back against a conservative hate tour um, with Quinton Benley to hosted by the Australian Families Association. Yeah, but as well as, like, there being... I think it's, like, coming off, like, a history of it... Of, 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 of like exclusion from feminism and still ongoing that stuff exclusion from queer spaces as well um, in some ways so I think like there is like stuff happening but it's also it could be so much more if there's more su- like structural support mm. yeah um, yeah and yeah like there is yeah so I kind of have mixed feelings about Mm. That as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, because when, when you mentioned that that um, protest a few weeks ago, you know, we were so lucky to have you on air that time as well to talk about it. Um, and yeah, it sounds like it went really well, which is so great. But for this pro- for this action that's happening tonight, um, yeah, what what are you what are you calling for, and how can people get involved? Yeah, so we're calling for. Um, and to victim blaming and transphobia as in general terms. I think that I mean, in like all spaces um, and how people can get involved is they can come to the Melbourne Exhibition and Convention Centre um, near Plenary One will probably be under Alcove because the weather's a bit inclement, but hopefully it'll be okay. Um, that's from 6pm. I'll be there for um, to 7, 7.30 or Eight, depending on, like, who's around. Yeah, so that will be happening tonight. Um, and otherwise, you can go get hop on social media and ask some questions of the School of Life of um, Melbourne University Press 
and Leslie Cannell is hosting. And he, like, they all have public pages you can write stuff on or whatever. So that's something else that can be done. Yeah, which is so important um, to do to actually show these people and these institutions that, you know, we care and we know what they're doing and we, um, yeah, we, like it's, and that it's not okay and that it doesn't have our support. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, um, we might call it a wrap for this morning, but thank you so much, Iris, for joining us to let us know about the action that's happening tonight. Oh, no worries. It's having me. Thank Thanks you. so much. And I guess off the back of that conversation, I just also wanted to let listeners know that if that brought anything up, because it was pretty intense and we were talking about um, things like transphobia, that you can always call um, Switchboard, the Trans Mental Health, um, help, Queer and Trans Mental Health Helpline on 1-800-184-527 or there's an online chat at qlife.org.au from 3pm to midnight every day. And Switchboard Victoria is a community-based, not-for-profit organisation providing peer-based volunteer-run support for queer and trans folk. So, yeah, give them a bell um, anytime. And we'll be going to another interview shortly, but for now, maybe some short announcements. Rumination. Re-CRs, rooming house and homeless persons issues program. Featuring information on health and housing services, as well as live local guests, artists and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12pm on Thursday on 3CR 855am. You got to remember, Nainop's a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcast. Happy night off! The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Mr. Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. 
Uh, you're listening to Thursday Breakfast. Um, next up, we have Ronnie Karani. So Ronnie is a West Papuan advocate on West Papuan West Papua's right to self-determination. His family are part of a large exodus of Papuan refugees to PNG in the early 1980s. Until today, many West Papuan refugees live on Manus. So Ronnie is joining us today to discuss the Pacific Islands Forum that has been underway this week. Good morning, Ronnie. Good morning, Anne. Um, uh, this is Shahrazad, and there's and, both of us here today as well. <laughs> um, so, Ronnie, can you tell us? Oh, sorry. Can you tell us a bit about the Pacific Islands Forum? Yes, so Pacific Islands Forum, as um, people will be aware, it established in 19, early 1970s, and some of the founding principles about Pacific Islands Forum is about decolonization, self-determination solidarity and given in the Pacific the spirit of Talanoa or it means coming together and talking in a dialogue together through sing-sing or dancing. And these are some of the key founding principles since the establishment of this organization, moving away from the metropolitan powers in the region back at in those days where the colonial powers, which is comprised of Australia, New Zealand, France, uh, the Netherlands and the um, the U.S., which they have a lot of the territories in the region. And so that has been the key kind of guiding force of this organization. At the moment, it has 18 uh, members, 16 of independent um, states in the Pacific. And so this week, the Pacific leaders are meeting in Nauru, the 49th uh, meeting of this Pacific Island um, leaders. And so there has been a lot of, um, uh, in the region, people are really looking forward to hear what's going to be coming out of the islands. But they are also, we are hearing a lot of um, contradiction um, in messages coming out, especially um, uh, with journalists are very restricted not to meet or talk with any of the refugees on Nauru, even... Um, just to um, make a report on the situations of the refugees. And as a refugee coming from West Papua, which um, as outlined in the introduction, um, in the early 80s, both Nauru and Manus Island in TNG has been Australia's uh, place that they can exercise their bullies and intimidation for the, these two um, regions, especially um, in Papua New Guinea where, and Nauru, where Australia uses its Osage aid to silence and also to control the government in both of these two islands and even across the Pacific. And this has created a structural dependency for these Pacific Island countries. And so this year, one of the themes that, that comes out from this whole Pacific meet, Island meeting is it's themed our people, our island, our will. And so it is a big statement to Australia and New Zealand that this is the specific way that we want to deal with situations on climate change, human security, um, including um, the ocean and Pacific Ocean in, in general, as well as um, 
how Australia is perceiving and treating the Pacific Island leaders. Mm-hmm. Oh, yep. Yeah, and this is M here, um, Ronnie. Um, and you mentioned before, you know, so the, so the Pacific Islands Forum this year is happening on Nauru, um, and you know, preceding that, there was thought that, you know, it would bring international attention to the, to the abuses and the violence that Australia is perpetrating, um, to all the refugees and asylum seekers that are locked up on, on Nauru and also on Manus. Um, but as you say, Australia's been, um, doing the best they can to cover over a lot of that. Um, could you talk a bit about yeah, what what actions the um, Australian government has been taking over, I mean, the past few days, weeks, months, to try to um, yeah either not allow reporters or to try to improve um, their image. Yes. So three months ago, prior to um, uh, journalists, uh, black people, mostly journalists in Australia and in the region, have to be to gain accreditation to go in and be allowed to go in and make reports on the meeting itself. And most of the Australian media were not given accreditation. It was basically selective. And when that announcement came out, it was made by the Nauru government um, that first they said that no, they don't allow any media to cover, cover any of this, um, this leader summit. And that has brought a lot of um, complaints by the media in the region, like why media is not allowed, like this is going to be the first time that media is not allowed to, to cover the summit. And, and then it's softened down, and Australian then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull were quick to make a response that um, it's not Australia's um, business to um, check on Nauru government on the restrictions. But prior to that, there was already talks around Australia applying more pressure to Nauru government not to give um, accreditation to the Australian media to allow it to be into um, Nauru. So that was already in the build-up. And close-up, to two weeks ago when um, everyone's ready to go in, selective, um, only journalists were allowed to go in, but also strict conditions not to uh, meet with gen- uh, the refugees on Nauru. And also their accreditation will be taken off if they happen to speak to a refugee. And we've seen that in the lead-up when the budget announcement now gained a lot more aid with even PNG amongst other Pacific Island countries. And so this is when I mentioned about the structural dependency, but at the same time, Australia used aid as a way to silence and as a way to make their way, like, bully the Pacific Island countries. And especially in the case of Nauru, that has been the case. And... So on Tuesday, there was a reporter from New Zealand um, TV happened to be traveling up past the the campsite, the refugee area, and talking to some of the um, the refugees. And straight away, she was detained um, by the, poli- the the police there for four hours, and her 
media accreditation was taken away straight away after that um, four hours um, detained. And so that was one. But also in the lead-up to this, um, the leader summit, which was last week, the, the government, under some authorities from, I believe, at this stage it is still um, um, allegations and there needs to be an investigation into this. But refugees were told to um, remove their tent and to making it look as if there is no refugee camp. So there'll be some videos taken or some live tweets on, 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 on that site. And so that was really interesting to hear that so when coming out um, from Nauru. And so we know that there is this a lot of um, playing behind this um, by Australia. And so, yeah, that is interesting development in the lead up until today. Even yesterday when the Nauru government said that they will um, remove any accreditation from any journalists who happen to be speaking to refugees. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, it, yeah, it's so shocking to hear. And as you say, there really needs to be further investigation into these allegations that, um, you know, that the tents were torn down or that refugees were moved on or that there was this attempt to make everything seem above board or okay. Um, but what I, what I want to ask you about now is, you know, you've, you've mentioned a few times this term structural dependency. And I was just wondering, could you unpack that a bit more for us? Yeah, that's structural dependency. Yeah, it comes from this um, neoliberal um, economic view from Western government that um, we give you money and that money will be trickling down and which will go down and support the, the locals, the people on the ground on poverty issues and um, alleviate some of those issues that um, developing countries are facing. But what we are seeing is that part of that um, aid, that money going into country, developing countries, and in the case in the Pacific, is that it is creating this... Um, dependency, where it is systematic way of developed countries having the bigger control of those um, developing countries and making it those small countries, developing countries, depending on the aid to survive. And this is in the case of Nauru, like even in PNG, but Nauru, it, it it was rich in phosphate. And it was the Australian um, companies that went in and really dry up the island. And to one point, it nearly bankrupted. And then Australia allowed uh, aid to go in. And so, in a way, right now, part of the detention centers um, operating is a way of um, Australian government has the upper hand to control Nauru government in terms of part of the money um, for the economy to go on. The money going into supporting our government is through the um, processing centers. And so except in, in a way it's creating the dependence um, or structural dependency that Nauru is heavily depending on Australia on aid and including even other parts of the developing countries in general. We're seeing in um, African countries, we're seeing in um, Caribbean countries, where this is really creating this um, 
polarization, marginalization in smaller countries where depending on aid to survive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think everything that you've raised there is so important to be talking about. And we'd, I mean, we'd love to have you back on air sometime to, to go into this further because we are running out of time this morning. Um, but I was just wondering, are there any, are there any last comments that you'd like to make in relation to the Pacific Islands Forum happening on Nauru? And how can listeners find out more or show that they don't support what's going on? Yeah, um, the last comments, like, um, especially as a refugee and, um, ex- like, like now living here in Australia, um, part of what I've been also advocating a lot is through with the RISE, um, organization in NAM. And one thing that we're calling for is to, um, close this, these two, um, hollows where this trade hell hole for the refugees and asylum seekers. And so that has been a strong um, campaign that, um, as part of this, the campaign to um, close down and shut down Manus and Nauru. And we're trying to build this awareness more with the locals, both in, in both Nauru and Manus Island, and, and really applying this upward pressure to the government and, and making the, the government also realizing that if the people of Nauru and the people of Manus Island are not um, going to allow this to go on longer. So that has been a uh, strong um, push as well through RICE campaign and commending RICE for a, a lot of the publicity and the work behind the scenes that putting it together to really call on the government um, to shut down those detention centres. And so that is kind of like one of the last comments, and especially with the Pacific Island um, region, we're seeing there's a shift as well um, in the region from Pacific leaders trying to really make a stand on the on Australia to be um, it's not about them but they to create this equal level playing field and so that is an interesting front where the civil society is moving forward in really challenging the government so there are some of the great um, um, civil society groups and one of those even here in Mal- like in Nam I Tracy High has been uh, one of the great um, community radio that I was I have been part of the Tricia um, community radio as a programmer with the voice of West Papua and mm-hmm. also as a staff. And, um, yeah, just a shout-out to um, Gab. I, I, <laughs> I know as a current affairs coordinator and all the staff there and the amazing volunteers. I did look after um, current affairs at one stage. So it's always my heart when I, you know, to talk about Tricia. And now and again I still talk with the voice of West Papua crew as well. So... Yeah, big shout out to to yeah. everyone down there, especially with Gab. I know you're listening. <laughs> yeah, Gab's here in the studio with us this morning. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much, Ronnie. Um, yeah, we'd really, really love to talk with you again sometime, but um, we do, yeah, have to wrap up now. So I hope you have a great day and we'll speak with you soon. Thanks, Ronnie. Thank you both. Yes, thank you, Anne, and thank you, Shea. Thank you. Bye. Um, so that was uh, Ronnie Karani, who is a West Papua advocate and does some stuff with RISE. Refugee. Um, and now we're going to go straight into um, a chat with Jonathan Latham, um, who is a co-founder and executive director of the Bioscience Resource Project and the editor of Independent Science News. 
Dr Latham is also the director of the Poison Papers Project, which publicises documents of the chemical industry and its regulators. Dr Latham holds a master's degree in crop genetics and a PhD in virology. He's published papers in disciplines as diverse as plant ecology, plant virology, genetics and genetic engineering. Um, good morning, Jonathan. Hi there, Em. Hi. So this morning um, we're going to be talking about genetically um, engineered crops. But I guess I wanted to start by, you know, I know that you yourself um, started out as you're a former genetic engineer. So just, yeah, could you maybe just give us some background on what made you do this U-turn to now becoming quite a public advocate against um, GMO crops? Uh, Sure thing. So, um, you know, I was in in the mid-90s. I was doing a PhD in plant virology, and it involved making GMO crops. And, uh, and it became apparent to me as I was doing this research that it wasn't intended to benefit, ultimately, uh, either farmers or consumers, that this was basically all about the plant breeding industry. And what I subsequently came to realize is that uh, this is about in the, the whole issue of GMOs, primarily to companies, means intellectual property. So what it is that has enabled uh, to happen is the consolidation of the seed industry based around the idea that if you put a single piece of DNA, in other words, a trans seed, into a crop, you become the owner of that crop, the owner of that variety. And you can enforce those intellectual property rights because you can identify the gene that's in there. So, so you create a powerful set of interlocking intellectual property rights that enable basically the, that have enabled the control of the seed industry by a small number of multinational corporations who, uh, who basically have, who, whose strongest interest is to sell uh, pesticides and fertilizers and so forth. Mm. And, I mean, people often, like um, supporters of GMO crops, often talk about um, the genetically modified food as a way of um, quote-unquote feeding the world, you know, of, of meeting increased demand. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, is that actually is that actually the intention behind GMO crops in your view? Uh, no, that, that explanation makes no sense. In that, you know, as a world, we produce probably enough food to feed 11 billion people already. So the pop- world population is 7 billion. It's projected to maybe not be 9 or 10 billion by uh, 2050. But that basically, at that point, it will peak and 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 crash. Uh, um, demographically. So essentially we don't need to produce more food. What we need is more quality food. But what, uh, what the industry wants to do, essentially there's, there's a narrative going on here in which we pretend that there is a future food shortage and the purpose of the, this narrative is to present the biotechnology industry and the, the uh, pesticide industry as being the necessary saviors of, of ourselves from starvation. So they, you know, they make these claims about how they can yield better than uh, local, sustainable, organic types of agriculture, which is not even true on its own terms. But nevertheless, they make this narrative, and they've convinced policymakers that if they don't back the chemical industry and the pesticide industry, that people will starve to death. And there's no truth in this whatsoever, but but it's become the standard understanding in the media, for example. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's so important to get across, you know, that, that this narrative of scarcity is, is constructed, it is fabricated, you know, and that within, yeah. 
yeah, within this narrative, you know, seed goes from being a renewable, regenerative um, resource into a non-renewable resource and commodity that is massively corporatized and privatized um, and owned by by private um, multinational corporations. I remember, I remember the first time, actually, when I started reading about GMO, I was like, how can people own life? You know, how can people own mm-hmm. seeds? Um, and it yep. is, it's quite shocking. Um, but what I wanted to jump to now was talking, and you've sort of raised this already, but how, you know, what we're talking about essentially is also the politics of food. Um, and this has to feed into a broader conversation, in my view, about globalization and imperialism. Um, and how, you know, these conversations around GMO crops, um, always run along certain globalized power dynamics and they're always gendered and they're always racialized. Would you, can you speak to that a bit? Well, you know, I mean, the power base of GMO crops is science and Western businesses. You know, it's being run by Monsanto, it's being run by Bayer, it's being run by BASF and Syngenta and these huge companies. And they are, you know, they're after a certain consolidation of the food system and a simplification of the food system. And I would say that it's based around, uh, you know, growing more corn, growing more soybeans, converting people in Africa from growing traditional crops into growing those commodity crops that they know how to market, to dispose of, to distribute, and to feed to animals and so forth. And the, the you know, the gender part for me comes in when when you want to, to uh, convince people to use these products. Like there's a huge push in Africa by people like the Gates Foundation They've identified women as a power group and who, as the people who grow the food, for example, and the people who convince the, the rest of the population to behave in certain ways. And so they, what they're attempting to do is frame their ideas around food production and move people away from traditional modes and methods uh, by appealing to women and, and positioning it as empowering of women. But essentially what's happening is this is it's really empowering of themselves. You know, they're trying to change the seed laws so that people can't share seeds. They're trying to change uh, the, uh, the laws to allow uh, genetic pollution to be to be uncontrollable and not to, to have, you know, the, their biggest fear, for example, in many ways, is to have the idea of the polluter pays, right? If the polluter pays in the world of biology, then then pollen and seeds that spread out from GMO farms become their responsibility and their, their issue to clean up and their, their fault if somebody's organic farm, for example, is contaminated. So no, their project cannot proceed. You know, the pollution is inevitable and their project can't proceed, proceed if they become responsible for that pollution. So they have to change the laws in these countries and fix the laws in such a way that, that it facilitates the spread out of GMOs, the rollout of GMOs. Mm. And I mean, before we were talking a bit of, um, about the, you know, the, the narrative of um, a global increasing population and GMO being a 
apparently um, needed to meet that demand. Another another really common narrative, I think, is um, around um, climate change and the need for so-called climate-ready crops. Um, but yeah. it, like, is this actually true? I mean, haven't haven't farmers for millennia been breeding crops um, for drought or salt tolerance or you know changing climate conditions? Yeah. It is another false narrative. You know, the best way the best way to cope with climate change is to grow different crops, right? But but as I just said, the biotech industry wants everybody to grow corn and soybeans and a few other products and a few other species, and so so they have this, you know, this whole uh, narrative of we have to make those particular crops climate re- climate ready. They're not at all interested in people who grow cow peas or people who grow sorghum or people, you know, virtually no effort is being made to make those kinds of crops climate ready. They just, you know, they have a very kind of picking and choosing way of framing the whole discussion. And a lot of the, the crisis around the climate is that, is that they, they, for example, if you, if you, you, you can, you can frame this as an issue of, you know, farmers have to grow, their corn crops will fail or their soybean crops will grow. And, and the issue is, you know, if, you, if, if farmers are trying to grow those crops in areas where they can no longer be grown, well, of course they're going to fail, but it's, not, it's unlikely that GMOs will actually save them from those situations. But what they want to do is you create a crisis by pointing out well, what is actually true, that you can no longer grow soybeans where you used to, no longer grow corn where you used to. But that doesn't mean it's a crisis. What, what should happen is that farmers grow other kinds of crops, crops that are more tropical and so forth in a warming world. But, but they don't wish to allow that to happen because, because they're not in nearly so much control of the soybean, of the, of the sorghum market, for example, or yeah. the market in some of these other crops. So yeah. there's this whole kind of, you know, every, every discussion gets framed in a, in a kind of particular way, in a very purposeful way, by the biotech industry to basically suit their narrative. And the uber narrative is, you know, we do have climate change, it's accelerating, it's getting worse very, very rapidly. And, you know, if we get, you know, the world can feed itself, there's no problem, we have huge amounts of wasted spare land and unused land and so on and so forth if available if we choose to use it and don't pollute it and so forth. But, but the, you know, if we really get to the point at which there is a vast crisis and, you know, all these landscapes are burning and so on and so forth, which is something we're coming to quite soon, it doesn't matter what kind of agriculture you're using at that point. We're, you know, we're in a bigger mess than that. Yeah. But, but, so, so the food crisis is not going to precede the rest of it. It will follow from a you know, disaster of the climate and so forth. Yeah. So there's no point foregrounding the food crisis. Farmers can, can fix these problems for themselves. Absolutely. We don't need the biotech industry. Yeah, and I think that's, that's a really great note to end on because unfortunately we're out of time this morning, Jonathan. But thank you so, so much for joining us and maybe um, we can get you back on air one day to talk about, you know, these, these problems often seem so massive, but there's a lot that we can do. So let's chat so, another day. Thank you so much. All right, thanks so much. Have a great day. Bye. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. 
And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. 